0: Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Mexico, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. And, yep, another big show. Lots to cover. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get it done or not, but we're going to give it the cowboy try. We're going to be talking about the history of recessions in the United States, with special emphasis on after World War II and up to the current times. And you'll understand as we get into the show after that historical discussion exactly why I'm bringing it up. You need to pay heed, folks. You need to pay heed. And then we're going to talk about Some of the current economic indicators, which, you know, for some reason, the mainstream press, ah, can you imagine this? They're just not bringing it to you. Instead, they're bringing you the change in definitions by President Kadaver and his cabal up there of the word recession and the rosy picture that the government's trying to portray ahead of the midterms. Oh, you know, this couldn't be intentional, could it? But you know what? When you dig behind the scenes, folks, there's kind of a dark winter coming. And you really need to be prepared. And my job is to bring you the information. Good, bad, indifferent, or ugly. And that's what I'm going to do. And then we're going to have another big rat-a-tat-tat on a whole range of subjects. There's some things blowing sky-high on these COVID jabs. And mandates that universities are still trying to impose on students. And new data coming out of Israel, the UK, Australia, and America that you need to know about. And... There's a whole bunch of court cases going on, and most of them are kind of falling in our direction. By our direction, I mean, you know, folks who believe in faith, family, and the Constitution. The American direction. And, of course, we're going to start with our founder's quote and a little rant story from the road. But first, I want to thank all the great folks down there in southeast Idaho Blackfoot, etc. Great event down there as always. You know we've been going there for years. It was great seeing you all. Thanks, you know, for scarfing up a bunch of books and people beating down, the, <laughs> beating down the signing podium for book five, which is coming soon. Stay tuned to the website threadswestseries.com. If you're not enrolled on that site, please do so. It's the only accurate information on books five and six of the Threads West series. And I want to extend the thanks to the folks in Iowa. You know, Spencer, Iowa, the home of the Clay County Fair. Huge event. And it's the first time we've attended, and it's absolutely terrific. The folks are terrific as they are, you know, really across the United States, and particularly in the the western and, shall we say, more red-hued states of the Union. And uh, we're looking forward to finishing up that show over the course of this coming weekend. You folks in Iowa, up there in Des Moines, listening to me on AM, etc., please, come on down, say hi, I'd love to meet you. Now, I'll tell you what, after the smiles and the giggles and the thank yous, let's get started on some serious business. How about starting with the founder's quote, which is our tradition. And this is Thomas Paine. The real man smiles in trouble, gathers strength from distress, and grows brave by reflection. You'll see how that quote ties into this show, I do believe. And now, I'll give you my little rant story. Once again, it's from the road. You know, I have only telephonic and text and whatever communications back there with the ranch. And it's come to my attention that one of our neighbors, and remember, you know, it's in 90 miles, give or take, of pavement and dirt on the road that goes by our and other ranches. There's only 11 of us, full-time residents, over 90 miles. I kind of like that space. And that means that everybody knows everybody else, and everybody kind of depends on everybody else, and it is very Americana. And I come to find out here over the past week or so that one of our very good neighbors, and remember that neighbors all help one another. We work together on fires, we work together on irrigation, we work together on the haying stuff. One of our very good neighbors with whom we work probably more closely than any other has decided that he's getting out of ranching. And what we've done over the years with him, many years, you know, 20 or so years, in terms of particularly the haying operation and The irrigation operations, us helping him, him helping us, has really been kind of a key ingredient to operations. And when I first heard this, my heart sank. You know, God, what are we going to do? I mean, there's no way that any single outfit can do everything that that single outfit needs without a little help from the neighbors, even though the neighbors may be 10 miles away. Well, you know, the way things work is that there's always an answer. I made a call to another gentleman, also a great guy with with whom we work, and he said he would be happy to step up to the plate and literally in a matter of minutes on the phone. We had everything sorted out, knew who was doing what to whom and how and when beginning next season, and it should be at least as smooth, maybe even a bit more smooth due to some circumstances here and there as the operations in the previous years. And you know what the moral of this rant story is? Every time a door closes, another one opens. So let's get into the history of recessions in the United States of America, and you're going to see some amazing kind of similarities between all these ups and downs in economic cycles. You're also going to see, as I'm going to point out to you in the the rest of the story, you're going to see some amazing historical patterns here that only a moron, and I'm talking about the Federal Reserve, the cadaver administration, the Congress, the whole nine yards, the cabal there in Washington, D.C., only a moron would not know Only a moron could not decipher, and only somebody with devious intent would ignore. But I'll explain that to you in the rest of the story. So, going all the way back to the Articles of Confederation, you know, the 1770s, 80s, etc., before the Constitution, there have been 48 recessions in the United States up to now. And they didn't have a lot of reporting back there. You know, most modern reporting really started after World War II, but there's very little Measures that can be used back there with a the lack of economic data as to the severity of these old-time recessions So to speak, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on those I just thought the number of recessions over 230 years is pretty interesting, you know 48 recessions over 230 plus or minus years is a lot of downtime if you know what I mean and recessions are caused By all sorts of different factors, external events, and we're going to talk about some of those. Differences and changes in agricultural production, industrial production, consumption, particularly consumer consumption here in the United States, business investment, how much money is a business putting into buying a new business, expanding its own business, and the health of the banking industry, which we certainly saw in 2008, right? Greed does not pay. And major modern economic statistics, unemployment, GDP, were not compiled until after World War II. The average duration of the 11 recessions that have occurred since World War II all the way up to include this nonsense COVID recession that we were forced to endure needlessly. Let's go back to like the very first recession after World War II, February to October 1945. And this was caused, obviously, by folks coming back from the war and industries gearing back down from wartime needs. And the surrender of both Germany and Japan, and then our participation in the reconstruction of those governments. That recession was serious. The GDP contracted by 11 percent. That's pretty huge. But the manufacturing sector adopted the peacetime conditions faster than expected, and at its worst, the um, unemployment rate was only about 1.9 percent. And then we have the recession of November 48 to October 1949. And this is when post-war consumer spending, right? A really key ingredient in the United States and really in Western countries. When wartime rations and restrictions were lifted after World War II, American consumers, it's kind of like after COVID, right? Another historical similarity. They rushed to catch up on years of pent-up demand. From 1945 to 1949, American households bought 20 million refrigerators, 21.4 21.4 million cars, and 5.5 million stoves. And remember, our population was a fraction of what it is today. And then that consumer spending boom, that pent-up demand, began to level off in 1948. And there was a kind of mild 11-month recession. GDP shrunk by 2%. Unemployment reached about 7.9%, in, in part accentuated by all the World War II GIs returning to the job market. July 1953 to May of 1954, this is known as the Post-Korean War Recession. Very similar to the World War II or the Post-World War II Recession, and kind of for the same reasons. GDP lost 2.2%, unemployment peaked at around 6%. And this was the first recession where things were kind of exacerbated by the Federal Reserve, its monetary policy. The Fed began raising interest rates to combat high inflation, Gee, is this sounding familiar? Which was caused by an influx of dollars into the wartime economy. Wow. Gee, that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? It's amazing. And the higher interest rates obviously had the intended effect of slowing inflation. But they also lowered everybody's confidence in the economy and undercut consumer demand. Does this sound familiar? Then in August 1957 to April 1958, we had the Asian flu pandemic. You know, maybe this was kind of a model for the folks that conjured up COVID, shall we say. So this Asian flu pandemic, hyped by the media, spread from Hong Kong, across India, into Europe and the United States. Many millions, tens of millions of people got sick. More than a million people died, and it triggered a global recession and cut U.S. exports by more than 4 billion. Now, in today's dollars, folks, that's hundreds of billions. Remember, the dollar the dollar has not maintained its value well since 1972. Listen to my radio show from last week. Go to the archives on the right side, and I explain how all this kind of occurred. All these historical stories right now, I'm intentionally building one on the other on the other like an empirical knowledge block, if you will. Dwight Eisenhower, the president at that time, he ended that recession. He boosted government spending. Gee, that seems to be a common theme. Particularly on highway construction, you know, the construction of the interstate highways and other public infrastructure projects. April 1960 to February 1961. This was a fairly mild recession. It was 10 months. GDP declined 2.4%. Unemployment reached 7%. And it cost Richard Nixon, as a side note, the election. It was really the reason he lost the election to John F. Kennedy who, by the way, got credit for bringing us out of the recession by, oh yeah, that's right, more government spending. He had a round of stimulus spending, does this sound familiar, in 1961, and he expanded Social Security and other unemployment benefits. Hmm, think COVID, think checks, think stimulus. December 1969 to November 1970. This is when the Fed tried to start putting brakes on the inflation of the 1960s. It was another extremely mild recession, almost kind of a course correction, and was engineered by the Fed under the Nixon administration. The U.S. economy had gone on like a 10-year spree, an expansion spree, and inflation had risen to over 5% in 1969. So the Fed raised interest rates, and it cooled this hot 1960s economy, but only decreased GDP by about 0.8%, you know, less than 1%. Recession was about 11 months long, Unemployment rose to 5.5%, and then when the Fed lowered rates again in 1970, which turned out to be a disaster, think again, lower rates pre-COVID, the economy cranked back into growth mode. November 1973 to March 1975, this was a painful recession, right? This was the OPEC oil embargo. Gee, we're now seeing energy play a role in recession. Hmm. And you know what? It was the first of many times, and what's happening today? Oh yeah, that's right. There was an oil embargo by OPEC, lines at gas stations, you know, rapidly rising fuel costs. And then Nixon really made a mistake. He tried to institute price and wage freezes on major U.S. industries. Well, uh, folks, that doesn't work. So companies were forced to lay off workers, and they were trying to avoid new salaries. And the whole thing kind of ground to a halt. In fact, the result was stagflation, a stagnant economy with high inflation and low consumer demand which folks you know that's exactly what we have today it's amazing how this history particularly economic history repeats isn't it? this was a 16-month recession a 3.4 percent reduction in GDP and a doubling of the unemployment rate to 8.8 percent you know pretty lofty and then the Fed panicked and they lowered interest rates and the recession but that set the stage Oh, let's think 2018 2019 and 2020 folks but that set the stage back then for rampant inflation. And we had a second oil bump, right? The Iranian Revolution. Iran's oil exports fell precipitously. And again, long lines, catapulting prices, and a resulting recession in the United States. And inflation, because the Fed had backed off, and because the government was printing money trying to, shall we say, bolster the economy, I'm sure there were no political purposes involved, inflation had gone up to 13.5%. And Volcker came in. Remember Volcker? He had no choice but to raise interest rates. And that put the brakes on the booming late 1970s economy. While the recession itself, as it's defined, was just six months long, really quite short, unemployment went up to 7.8%. This was a pretty painful recession, and was followed by the first double-dip recession in U.S. history, the recession of 1981 to November 1982 this was kind of an ugly downturn. You know, a lot of people got hurt in this one. Paul Volcker pushed interest rates to 21.5%. Some of you are too young to remember that. Some of you do remember it. You talk about pain. That was pain. But that's what has to be done to lower inflation. Economists generally consider the necessity of raising interest rates to at least 2% above the inflation rate to start taming inflation. Remember, Inflation right now, based on the figures, I'm going to be talking about this later in the show, that just came out here a couple days ago, is 8.3%. You know, you do the math. Unemployment jumped to 10%. And this was before they started monkeying with the figures, folks. And finally, this was ended by Ronald Reagan. A combination of tax cuts, gee, imagine that, and defense spending. Hmm, you know, (laughs) where have we heard those songs before? That brings us to July 1990 to March 1991, which was the S&L crisis and the Gulf War recession. So many of you probably remember s and folding left and right, very poor lending practices, all sorts of fraud and theft by S&L executives. I mean, it was just a nasty time in finance in the United States. And at the same time, the Gulf War created the third big jump. In oil and fuel prices, the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq. By the way, I've seen the theme here with energy. Wait till we get to the rest of the story. GDP declined 1.5%. Unemployment peaked at 6.8%. And even after the recession officially ended, quote unquote, in 1991, it was followed by a number of quarters of really, really slow growth. March to November of 2001. This was the dot com crash, as it's called. And it was followed on its heels by 9-11, right? That tragic day, which the anniversary of which just passed. And you take those two double whammies together, over-exuberant, should we say over-greedy, investing in all sorts of speculative tech startups by investors, uh, all sorts of weird bad credit lending practices by banks, particularly on investments. And then, of course, 9-11, which devastated the economy for a while. And it kind of knocked the United States on its butt. GDP only went down about three-tenths of 1%. Unemployment peaked at 5.5%. And the economy finally pulled out of the 2001 recession caused by those events based on the strength of the housing market. Hmm. And that was the setup for the really deep recession, the Great Recession of 2008. And December 2007 to June 2009, the Great Recession, this was a global financial meltdown. This was the first time... Really, that the interconnectivity of things kind of undermined the House of Cards on a worldwide basis, and it was all triggered by the collapse of the United States housing market, or should I say the housing bubble market at that time, which also resembles, oh, that's right, right now, the housing bubble, hmm. It's amazing how history repeats, or at least rhymes. China, folks, I brought you this story last week. China is in the midst of a huge, a $60 trillion, three times more than our market. Housing and real estate collapse over there. You don't think there's going to be effects worldwide? Just go back to 2008, the U.S. housing market and the worldwide economy. So this was kind of an agonizing 18-month recession. Unemployment went over 10%. GDP shrunk by what's really a whopping 4.3%. And guess what? The economy was only turned around after massive government stimulus spending. Oh, you know, the printing presses. 1.5 trillion dollars. And this is where our debt really began to skyrocket. Remember that George Bush left office leaving a reprehensible about 5.2, 5.3 trillion in national debt. And when Barack Obama left office, it was 15 to 16 trillion well part of the money is right here that i'm telling you about and that brings us to february april 2020 the covid conjured recession intentional in my opinion and based on all these other little historical tidbits that anybody with eyesight and a brain and deductive reasoning could put together and formulate a plan off of but that's for the rest of the story during the conjured covid recession which was spurred on by lockdowns and other nonsensical mandates and edicts by folks who now say that they were wrong and they're sorry and they're reorganizing and yada, yada, yada. And from which all sorts of shady characters like Fraudulent Fauci and Scarf Lady Burks and Collins uh, dearly departed from the CDC made huge sums of money off of This recession, the COVID recession, was only turned around by massive, let's underline the word massive, make capitals, put it in bold, government spending, $6 trillion were printed in so-called pandemic relief, unquote. And the Fed, right, just the opposite of what you do when you're printing money and causing inflation, lowered interest rates to basically zero. It was the perfect combination for runaway inflation, which, ha, imagine that, we have today. And that really brings us... To the rest of the story the rest of the story is this imagine that you are an economist and let's say that you have Marxist tendencies and let's say you're all in on you know transformation of America and Western economies and capitalism to socialism or communism and you're sitting there and you're reading some economic history books just going back to 1945 the end of World War II. And you see that every time there was a disruption in oil supply, there was a recession. There was rising rates, rising costs, more people in distress. And every time you go back to 1945, you see that when the Fed raised interest rates, inflation was eventually tamed so long as the Fed stuck to its guns. But the rise in interest rates slowed down the economy, hurting even more people. And let's say you're sitting there and you're reading this history and you go, aha, look at this flu pandemic back then where a bunch of people died and a bunch of people got sick, and the whole world began to shut down in a global recession. And as you examine each of these recessions and you see these patterns of causation running through them, you also pick up other, should we say, trends within each downturn. Anything that went on with agriculture, anything that went on with industry, anything that went on with manufacturing. And you come up with a plan That uses all these proven precipitators of economic distress, massive money printing, really low interest rates, bad credit decisions on the part of lenders, which we're going to get into in the next segment. Oil spikes and supply problems. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, for me to transform something, for me to listen to these words now, build back better. You Remember Biden's words, build back better? That phrase happens to come from the World Economic Forum, right? The globalists our friend Klaus Schwab, you will be happy and you will own nothing. What would it take for you to come up with a plan to engineer, really, distress, chaos, and financial degradation of Western economies, and particularly the United States? You know, it wouldn't take you much. I think a sixth grader could do it. So all this nonsense, as the conclusion of the rest of the story, that you hear about how there is no recession, and how uh, they're bringing us out of it, and how they're making all the moves to to protect us, those citizens for whom they have such deep empathy, you can call their bluff. And you can call their bluff on the BS that all that crap is. Because everything that's happening, folks, is intentional. There's plenty of historical data and historical fact and historical interweave between various aspects of the economy and external events that none of this that is going on can be an accident. Which brings us to what they aren't telling you about today's economy and the economic news. In fact, just over the last week, it's really rather amazing. So let me fill you in here. Remember, shadowstats.com, shadowstatistics.com, that website is your friend. That will give you real unemployment, which, by the way, is about 24%. That will give you real inflation, which, by the way, is over 20%. And all sorts of other incredible figures, and they're accurate. They are compiled using the old methods before all the government fudgy-dudgy. You better be getting ready for the next credit crisis. Let me give you some stats here. The last one was 2008-2009. And it's really easy, right? Good times, lenders, banks, private equity firms, whatever, they begin loosening their underwriting standards. So that makes credit easy to obtain. And then as the credit pool expands, lenders eventually run out of good borrowers, but they want to keep making money. So they start targeting borrowers that are lower and lower and lower on the credit scale. And then these low-quality loans begin to go bad, and folks can't make their loan payments. And remember that folks not making their loan payments is exacerbated by high inflation, which is really a hidden tax. And that slows the economy, makes it harder for other borrowers to repay their loans. And delinquencies become defaults, and they become bankruptcies, individual and corporate. And credit dries up so expect that to be coming our way because that is the history there is no other end to this little dance that we're doing or should we say dance that we're being instructed to do or coerced to do let me give you an example buy now pay later they're called BNPL loans short-term zero interest or below market interest to begin with installment loans virtually no credit checks there's firms like a firm or afterpay, or Klarna, that offer these, and it's kind of like the worst lending practices of the SNL crisis. Okay, the SNL crisis, those were ninja loans. They were called no income, no job, no assets. I mean, really, they actually had a name for these loans in the industry. You'll see BNPL payment options if you keep your eyes open on more and more websites. And folks are using it to buy merchandise in stores and food. They're beginning to use it for food. This is not a good thing. They estimate that 60% of people under the age of 45 have used BNPL. Wow. And generally, they have also found that people using BNPL, buy now, pay later, spend more than if they were using, like, a credit card. Certainly more than if they were using cash. TransUnion, the Credit Reporting Agency, they're reporting that 70% of the BNPL users are subprime, that is, really, really, really shaky credit borrowers. Okay, this is exactly, folks, the type of loose underwriting that you see at the top of credit cycles before it kind of all unravels. Did you know that car repossessions are rising rapidly? 20 million Americans, as of last week, are behind in paying their electric bills. It's kind of a basic bill here. And credit is tightening. Banks are becoming more cautious. Any and all types of loans. And it doesn't matter whether they're loans to large or small companies or consumer-related loans to, you know, the average Joe Blow, you and me. Do you remember when Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Paola called inflation transitory? This is like back in the spring and summer of April 20 of 2021. Yeah, well, it wasn't transitory, was it? And all of a sudden, after everybody is caught in this inflationary spiral, which was created by the printing of money by a government, just like all the historical stories I brought you just now, the historical threads, a bout of inflation, folks, is not like catching a cold, okay? You're not, like, back up on your feet and feeling great after a week. It's more like severe pneumonia, and you're going to be sick for a while. And if you don't take it seriously, and you don't do what it takes to fight it off, it's going to stick around a really, really long time, and you're going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. From 1973 to 1979, that period where we had, like, 13.5% inflation, okay, the inflation rate decreased from one month to the next, 36 times, but it maintained kind of its inexorable, its unabated rise until Volcker stepped in there with 21 percent interest rates. And the CPI data for August, right, the the numbers that were just reported, show that even though it went down from year to year, 8.5 to 8.3, guess what? It went up month to month from July to August, one tenth of one percent, and core inflation rose six tenths of one percent so the bottom line here is if the fed is serious about getting inflation which they caused to begin with under control the interest rates now of three and a half to four percent federal funds they're gonna get way way higher buckle up that interest interest rate seatbelt that I hope you're wearing and now let's get into rat tat tat to start off rat tat tat there's a great video posted underneath the audio bar on the website on the right side radio it has to do with J6, the real events, not the nonsense that you're hearing from the J6 committee. It was put together by the Epic Times. I suggest you watch it. I'm not going to tell you about it, but let me give you a few tidbits. The D.C. Capitol Police escorted nine vanloads loads of Antifa into D.C. to the barricades surrounding the Capitol. They removed the barricades, allowing people to move close to the Capitol. Then they opened doors and invited them in, and the FBI was complicit. And the J6 hearings that are being conducted by Liz Cheney and uh, associated group of, uh, I'll control myself, representatives, was a farce and is a farce. And their witnesses have been coached and they are a farce. And the testimony is false. Watch that video, folks. You will be more informed than 99% of Americans and 100% of the press. In good news, we've been accusing the White House and Big Tech of collusion and censoring conservative viewpoints for years, right? I mean, we know what's going on. Meta, Twitter, the whole cabal of big tech. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, he's pushing a lawsuit against the Biden administration, you know, President Cadaver, and it alleges coordination, collusion with social media to improperly affect elections. And a court has now ruled the judge's name is Terry A. Doughty. He's a U.S. District Court judge. He's ruled that the Biden administration has to turn over all their records. This is great. From key officials, 45 key officials, including Dr. Fauci. Oh, Tony, can't wait to see what you had to say to the press and to big tech. And the White House press secretary and FBI folks and all sorts of other people. It's going to be really interesting when we see the communications between Meta, Twitter, YouTube, etc. And all these High mucky mucks in the democratic Marxist government, which now I- illegitimately runs this country. And another story. It seems that the federal government has put pressure on credit card companies, particularly when it comes to keeping records of all your purchases of ammunition, gun accessories, and guns. Hmm, I thought a registry was illegal. Not that that matters to the current administration. Basically, they're paving the way for a global gun registry, folks. That's exactly what they're doing. And this move applies to gun stores, okay? It coincides with, in a number of states like Illinois, state police suddenly making house calls. You know, hello, I'm your local state policeman. I'm here to grab your guns. Hmm. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul, I told you about her last week. She's told all the Republicans to get out of her state. And her attorney general, just as bad as she is, Tish James, they twisted arms and worked in collusion with a bank called Amalgamated Bank, which brands itself as a socially responsible bank. Ah, boy, I can't wait to move my money there, or what's left of it after inflation and interest rates. And that bank, along with the state, lobbied Geneva-based international organization for standardization. It's called the ISO. Remember, this is international, folks. To approve what is known as a Merchant Category Code, or an MCC, explicitly for firearm stores. Ah, what could go wrong here? On the COVID front, oh, it's not looking good for the jabs. First of all, uh, people are saying no to them. That's really good. And this new uh, bivalent jab has only been tested on mice. Eight mice, yes. They want you to go out and inject yourself with more of this mRNA. With uh, now, you know, 1.5, whatever it is, million VAERS cases, over 2 million in Europe. Remember, it's only a small percentage get reported, with athletes dropping dead at about 30 times the normal rate across the globe, healthy young people, with all-cause deaths skyrocketing in all the countries around the world where the jab constitutes a rather large percentage of the population, and in children. They want you to go out and stick their new needle in your arm based on the test on eight mice. Ah, oh, that's great. If you go to the COVID page on therightsideradio.com, you can kind of read all about it. And listen, the folks who put together this study, this is not conspiracy theorists, as Katie Hobb likes to call her opponents. This is the Social Science Research Network, which includes Dr. Stefan Bacall an epidemiology professor at John Hopkins, surgeon Dr. Martin Adel Macri, a professor at John Hopkins, who's written a number of books, Dr. Vinayak Prasad, a hematologist and oncologist, professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and Salman Kashajevi, and I hope I pronounce his name right. He's an MD, a PhD, and the director of the Harvard Medical School for Global Health. Hmm. You know, I think these are some pretty high-credential guys, and this is their study, folks. And they have glommed onto, rightfully so, universities still mandating injections, at least three, into incoming students and attending students, or, gee, you don't get to go to college. And it seems that a bunch of colleges and universities, they've now hired their own staff, listen to this, to investigate any exemptions that might be claimed by existing or incoming students, because they're not going to honor them. That's right. And, you know, this comes at a time when some countries are kind of quietly on the sly compensating people for devastating vaccine, quote-unquote, injuries. Other countries are limiting COVID-19 vaccine, quote-unquote, recommendations. A number of Scandinavian countries are outlawing them for anybody under 18. But the, in the United States, gee, thanks, Dr. Fauci, the, the United States is now recommended that children 12 and older get the Pfizer booster, and young adults over the age of 18 get Moderna's updated shot. Oh, terrific. In Canada, our friend Trudy and his little health Nazis, they're suggesting that Canadians, all of them, are going to need the COVID-19 vaccines every 90 days. Hmm. These doctors, by the way, world-renowned, impeccable credentials, they give five specific reasons for coming down on these universities for these mandates. First of all, a lack of policy-making transparency. There is no science backing this whatsoever, quite the opposite. Expected harm. Their study shows that expected harm exceeds the potential benefit of boosters to that population. A lack of efficacy. In other words, they don't work. No recourse. If you take these jabs and you get injured, these young adults have no recourse, even for their medical expenses. And a harm to society. Because it separates the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. You know, exactly the opposite of what CDC said to do after two years of saying the opposite of that. Just several weeks ago, I brought you that story. Unvaccinated people should be treated the same as vaccinated, and we're reorganizing so we don't make these mistakes again, yada, yada, yada. By the way, this study, they show that between 22,000 and 30,000 previously unaffected young adults would have to be boosted with this vaccine to prevent just one, one single hospitalization. Think about that. They also found that for every one, that's one, COVID-19 hospitalization in young adults who had not previously been infected with COVID-19, 18 to 98, quote, serious adverse events, unquote, will be caused by vaccinations. And in another gun control thing, gun owners of America went to war with the FBI with a FOIA request. The FBI was withholding information. And in some of the stuff they got out of this FOIA request, guess what? The FBI is trying to attempt, do you remember that story I just brought you on, you know, the credit card stuff for guns? The FBI is attempting to expand its dragnet, you know, its firearm dragnet, to locate and disarm Americans before They even buy a gun. Oh, terrific. Do you remember that movie, Minority Report? (laughs) Look it up. Yeah, look it up. And as part of this, FBI agents have actually been showing up at people's homes with papers that they demand they sign, which really is somebody signing away their God-given right, their Second Amendment right, to keep and bear arms. And this is based on just a suspicion. In the meantime, mass shooters, of course, who go through the NICS system, which works very poorly, that's where they should be spending their time, fixing that. They get their firearms, quote-unquote, legally, and go shoot up, in my opinion, through mind control. And I have brought you those stories. Look in the archives. MK Ultra, Voice to Skull Technology, etc. on the right side, They go shoot up schools. Hmm. What's wrong with this picture? And then in kind of a funny story. So, you know, the mayors in Chicago and New York and Washington, D.C., they've gone ballistic, Because Ducey, the governor of Arizona, and Abbott, who rocks, down there in Texas, they've been shipping thousands of illegal aliens in buses back to these cities. And these cities, if you recall, have called themselves sanctuary cities. Remember? They're sanctuary cities. I think Bowser there in D.C. said something along the lines of, you know, uh, all, uh, all folks who are immigrating to the country to escape persecution, and blah, 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 are welcome here in Washington, D.C. Well, it seems not so much. You know, when they really start showing up in these cities, these Democratic Marxist mayors freak out. And so does all their government, all their little government pitter-patters. There's a councilwoman. Okay. She was jumping up and down for years about how Washington, D.C. was a sanctuary for illegals. And now she's complaining that the border states are turning Washington, D.C. into, I quote, into a border town, unquote. <laughs> her name is Brienne Nadu, and she's blaming Doug Ducey in Arizona and Abbott down there in Texas. They're creating a mess for her town, a mess, I want you to know, for her sanctuary city. Quote, the governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. (laughs) It's unbelievable. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion, unquote. Oh, yeah. Okay. Quote, in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. We don't know how long this will take to resolve. We don't know how long they, you know, they folks. Is that bigoted or... Is that improper or is that the right pronoun? We don't know how long they will continue to come and how long they will continue the busing. And so the right thing here to do is to prepare to ensure we can greet every bus. We can get people off on the right foot. We can get them to where they want to go. And that will ultimately help them in their immigration process. Anyway, I kind of love it, you know? <laughs> it's it's really good. I really like that story. Go Ducey, go Abbott. And then we have, you know, in the midst of an energy crisis around the globe, remember our historical story, right? Spike in oil prices, printing of money, low interest rates, inflation. You get inflation, you raise interest rates, and the middle class gets crushed. Hmm. Time and time and time again. No exception to that rule. Well, now the United Nations, who of course loves us, they love Americans, and they love America. They're warning that, a return to fossil fuels cannot be considered under any circumstance. It doesn't matter if people are freezing to death in Europe. Uh, It doesn't matter if 50 million families here who are going deeper and deeper into debt because of fuel prices. None of that matters. Quote, There is no room for backtracking in the face of the ongoing climate crisis. Unquote. This is the Deputy U.N. Rights Chief, Nada (laughs) El-Nashif. I mean... Wow. And she went on to blame these those big floods in Pakistan, which affected, you know, 33 million people. I mean, they were big floods, but they're an, just an example of what's going to happen to the planet, to all of us, if we go back to fossil fuels by one single drop, folks, one single drop. Quote, how many more tragedies of this sort do we need before the urgency of the moment jolts us into action? Unquote. You know. What about all the people who are starving? What about the people who don't have heat? What about the people who are going into debt? What about the families that are being wrecked? What about the finances? What about the personal bankruptcies? I mean, lady, your lack of empathy is absolutely transparent, you and your cohorts. And then, with Europe like teetering on the brink, she said, quote, some EU member states are turning to investments in fossil fuels, infrastructure, and supplies, and that must stop. You know, folks, at the same time, not a peep about China. Not a peep. Not even a whisper. Or India. And in the case of China, Global Energy Monitor called GEM, okay? And the Helsinki-based Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, the CREA, they revealed in a recent study, quote, China built over 3 times as much coal-fired electrical power capacity in 2020 as the rest of the world combined. Unquote. So, do you think this is like an unequal application of hand constraints, economic constraints, and damage to populations by the United Nations? Let me think about this. And as always, we are out of time, unfortunately, because once again, I I didn't cover what I wanted to cover. In the next two weeks, I'm going to bring you all sorts of election news, some recommendations on various elections and who to support, if you wish, around the nation and uh, some really, really interesting information on voter fraud and how other countries handle such things as IDs and voter fraud. Let me put it this way. They don't handle it the way democratic Marxists in the United States would like to see it handled. That's all I'll say. So repeat after me, folks. Look in the mirror. Repeat with your family. And repeat with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. We'll talk at you next week. Keep the wind at your back.